Well, hi, thanks for joining us uh, as we continue in our series, Come and See, looking at the book of John. So when my wife was just 14 years old, she was an all-star babysitter. And one night she was watching a little boy. He was one years old. His name is Eli. And he was eating and suddenly he started to choke. His eyes got wide and he got really panicked. And incredibly, my wife, when she was just 14 years old, she knew exactly what to do. Uh, she grabbed Eli and turned him, uh, like laid him down face down and started pounding on his back right between his shoulder blades until the food shot out of his mouth and he could take a breath again. And talk about the, the fear and the panic. And I was asking my wife just like the other night, like, how did you know what to do? You were so young. And she said, I don't know. I, I was just prepared for that moment, I just remembered uh, someone to, like told me like what the signs of choking looks like and what to do in that moment, and I was ready when the moment came. And I'm so glad she was ready. I mean, imagine how differently uh, Eli's family's life would be uh, if if he had choked and if she wasn't prepared for that moment. And it just got got me thinking about how important timing is. I mean, we say that timing is everything in our culture. Uh, You know, this is why if you're a parent, you teach your kid uh, what to do when they hear a fire alarm or what to do when uh, something really scary happens before the scary thing happens, right? This is why we buckle up before we start driving down the freeway. This is why uh, we hopefully are setting some money aside before the financial emergency happens and we lose our job or uh, the furnace breaks down and we have to buy a new one. The writer of Proverbs says that the ant is wise because he gathered what he needed for winter before winter came. Timing really is everything. And the question we have to start asking as we grow as followers of Christ is what time is it? What time is it? And as we look at uh, John chapter 12, we're going to see that Jesus is talking all about timing and being prepared for what is about to come. Look with me at verse 35. Uh, He said, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk, uh, Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. We're going to come back to that again later. But we have to start thinking about timing. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that you have the light now, but darkness is coming. So that requires some some preparedness. It requires uh, us to wake up to what is happening and, and understanding what the time is. He's saying right now, you need to learn to live in the light of who I am and what I am teaching so that when darkness comes, it doesn't, it doesn't destroy you. So we're going to come to Jesus today and ask, what time is it? What time is it right now? And what do I need to do right now in 2021 to be prepared for whatever is coming? So turn in your Bible with me if you've got it. uh, Open it up or turn it on to John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 20. So just a little setup here. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. So everybody is talking about Jesus. And, and this coincides with the great feast of Passover. So they're right next to Jerusalem and tens of thousands of people, Jews from all over the Middle East are, are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So everybody's talking about Jesus, talking about this man who had just raised another man from the dead. 
woe. And they're also talking about how Jesus has a price on his head because the religious leaders are afraid that with Jesus's popularity, he's going to start an insurrection that's going to bring down uh, the punishment of Rome, the Roman Empire. And so they have a price on his head and they are trying to arrest him and kill him. So that's the context as we jump into verse 20. And he says in verse 20, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip uh, went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And here's th this crazy response that Jesus gives. His reply isn't, oh yeah, tell them to come on, come on down. Yeah, I'd love to see them. Oh my gosh, uh, the Greeks are coming? Wow, you know? No, he says, oh, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now this is, this is not what you would expect from Jesus, but this is key to understanding uh, the signs of the times and waking up to what's happening. Because so far in John's gospel, when Jesus says, he's, like he's talking about the hour, what he's talking about is uh, the hour where he goes to the cross and he's crucified for the sins of the world. That's what he's talking about. And so far, over and over again, he said, the hour is not yet come. The hour is not yet come. But now he's saying something has changed. It's now. The time is here. Something has changed. See, because Jesus is recognizing the signs of the times. He's recognizing that a page is turning in history and that there's a new age coming. And it's triggered by his awareness that the Greeks are coming. See, Greek, uh, if you were a Jew in ancient Palestine, uh, the Greek, you know, that's just a word that you would use for everyone who's not Jewish. So everybody was Greek, no matter where they were from. If they weren't Jewish, they were Greek. And, and Philip was saying, the Greeks are coming, Jesus. And Jesus knew that that was significant. It was the dawning of a new age because that signaled to Jesus that his ministry was no longer this, uh, this small kind of messianic renewal movement in, this, uh, in, in the Jewish community, which compared to the Roman Empire was just a small little uh, persecuted minority sect. The, the fact that Jews were now coming, I'm sorry, Greeks were now coming to seek Jesus out meant that this, uh, like the word about Jesus had jumped the border, that this was becoming a global movement. And Jesus knew that that was the beginning of the fulfillment of all the promises that God had been making to Abraham and to David, that, that God would bring all nations, all people to himself to be a new reconciled multi-ethnic people who would uh, covenant with God and begin to reflect his generosity and his justice and goodness all over the planet. And Jesus knew this is what was happening. And so he, he says the hour has come, and then he, he tells us what that means. And what he's going to do in this conversation, he's, he's going to uh, give his followers a heads up on two realities, two realities that they have to wake up to, and we have to wake up to in order to know what to do in this time, as we're asking, what time is it? So the two realities that he talks about are uh, his glory, the glory of God, and his judgment, the judgment of God. So let's keep going in verse 23. He says, the hour has come for what? 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we'll talk about what that means in just a second. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who lives their, uh, sorry, who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life, not talking about literal hating their life, because Jesus isn't teaching, uh, you know, us to be suicidal. He's talking about in proportion to love and clinging on to life. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Uh, in, In verse 27, he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Uh, no, it is for this reason I came to this hour. And then Jesus prays this beautiful, powerful prayer. Father, glorify your name. And God responds, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In other words, Jesus, I've been glorifying my name for a very long time and I'm not gonna stop. And the crowd that was there heard it and, and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him, and Jesus said the voice was for your benefit, not mine. So, so much to unpack there, but we're just going to focus in on what Jesus is saying about God's glory. He's saying that it's time to wake up to God's glory. What time is it? Time to wake up to God's glory. What's glory? Well, God's glory, basically, if you were to boil it all down, what God's glory is, is God's glory is what matters most. It's what matters most. It's important. It's, It's significant. When we talk about glory, especially God's glory, what we're talking about is, is what really matters. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for glory in the Bible literally means weight. It means heaviness. It's talking about what's significant, what's important and consequential. So a helpful way to think about glory is, is to kind of relate it to an experience that maybe you've had. So um, I think an ocean uh, is a really good example. So this is my family and I last October. We were at the Atlantic Ocean. We were in Georgia at the time. And I remember standing there on the shore and looking at this beautiful, vast body of water and just going, wow. You know, something happens when you look at something that huge, like a mountain or an ocean. You start to feel small in comparison. You start to feel almost weightless in comparison. And we were having a great time uh, at the ocean. Uh, and I think this next picture captures it so well. So this is my daughter, Ivy. Uh, we were in the waves and these waves were huge and they were crashing over us. And, and it was simultaneously like joy, but also fear. It was thrilling to be in this, this vast uh, moving ocean and to feel the power of these waves crashing over us. And it's, it's so large. It's so vast. At one point, I remember thinking, wow, I wonder if 4,000 miles east of here, maybe in the coast of North Africa, there's another family doing exactly what we're doing right here. And, and what, we, what, we, what we realize is like the ocean is great. It's beautiful, but it's also dangerous, right? It's, it's dangerous. We, we can't treat it uh, lightly. And this is, I think, a helpful way to think about the glory of God, I mean, you think about an ocean, generations of human beings have been born and lived their lives and died, and the ocean is still there. 
They, they can't change it. Uh, you know, you could go to a beach and you could pick up seashells and you could maybe take a little jar of water home, but you can't take the ocean home. It's just there. It matters. It's, it's important. It has weight and it's, it's, um, it's not an abstract idea. It's, it has so much there-ness, if that makes sense. Like, you have to take the ocean seriously or it could kill you. And what we see when Jesus is talking about God's glory, he's not talking about it with a smile on his face. There's gravity in his voice and he's troubled. He's, he's vexed. He has anxiety. There's dread because of what this means for him. And part of waking up to God's glory is waking up to its imminence. It's imminence, meaning that, that uh, God's glory uh, is, is not safe. That we have to be just aware. We can't take it lightly. We have to take it seriously. We have to give it its due. And the Bible never describes God's glory uh, in, in terms of abstract kind of beauty, you know, or, or just kind of radiance. It's, an, it's always this imminent reality that demands to be taken seriously. Like in Exodus 24, the Israelites are around Mount Sinai and God's glory is there. It's described as a consuming fire that is surrounding the mountain. It's so terrifying that God literally invites the whole nation up to the mountain to experience his glory and they say, nope, we're just gonna send Moses. He can take notes and uh, tell us what you said. They were terrified. In uh, Exodus 33 verse 20, uh, Moses is having a conversation with God in his glory. And he says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see it without any kind of veil. And God says, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. The prophet Ezekiel is having a vision of God's glory. And uh, in Ezekiel chapter one, he says he was describing the glory and its, its beauty and all of that. And then he said, uh, when I saw it, I fell face down. God's glory is imminent. It's not safe. We have to give it its due. You can't take it lightly, just like the ocean. And when Jesus is saying the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's not talking about us just being inspired by him or by his example or by his kindness. He's talking about us experiencing the weight of the divine bearing down into our reality. That's the glory of God. And God, when Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name, what he was doing is praying that we would all see what really matters, that we would wake up to his glory, that we would experience the power and imminence of his presence. And the Bible calls this the fear of the Lord over and over again in the wisdom literature. And it said that the fear of, Lord, uh, the, fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of our ability to make wise choices. Just like you don't go to an ocean willy-nilly, you come prepared, you come with caution, you come with wisdom. That's the same way we come to God. It gives us the ability to make wise choices. So we have to wake up to uh, its imminence, the imminence of God's glory. We also have to wake up to its worth, that it's valuable, that it's priceless. 
And Jesus talks about this kernel of wheat that falls and dies and springs forth, like it multiplies in its value. There's new life that just explodes out of it. Uh, talking about clinging to life now and losing it anyway. But, but if you give it up, if you release it to God, that, that uh, you get to experience real, abundant, eternal, glorious life. So there's this, this understanding of the, the worth of God's glory. And a really uh, cool example of this that I just came across was um, there was this 30-something-year-old guy uh, who was working at a tool and dye company in Indiana, and he was playing uh, this game, the game Masterpiece. Maybe you've played it. I played it when I was a kid. Uh, it's like a, an art auction game, so you can pretend you're a high roller and like, you know, bid uh, fake money on fake uh, art masterpieces. But the, the prints are real. Like, the, you know, those are real paintings on the cards. And he saw a card that struck him because it looked really familiar. And he remembered that he had a very similar painting hanging on his wall in his house. So what had happened is he had knocked a hole in, in a wall in his house, and instead of repairing it, <clears throat> I guess he was too busy or too much of a man or I don't know, something. Instead of repairing it, he went to a rummage sale and found a kind of cool painting for a few dollars, and he bought it, and he covered the hole in his wall. And he went home and, and, saw, and saw the painting. It was this. And he realized, um, he realized what he had, what he had been using to cover uh, the hole in his wall. It was this uh, masterpiece called Magnolias on uh, Gold Velvet Cloth by the 19th, Ameri 19th century American painter Martin Johnson Heed. And he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been using this masterpiece uh, to cover a hole in my wall. And he called up the... Um, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and they, they bought the painting from him for $1.25 million. And when you wake up, isn't that a great story? When you wake up to the worth of God's glory, you realize that so many of the things that you thought were valuable, your ego, your job, your health, you know, so many of those things, your money that you thought were valuable are nothing compared to the worth of knowing God. And when you wake up to the, the worth of God's glory, you're waking up to the real value of your life compared to the glory of God. Paul describes what this feeling is like in Philippians chapter three, verse eight. He said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, waking up to the, the worth of God's glory, uh, giving it its due, treating it as weighty, as significant, and as important, uh, it causes you to begin to shift all of your priorities and it makes everything fall into place. So what time is it? It's time to wake up to God's glory. It's also time to wake up to his judgment. Dun, 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 right? Look at uh, verse 31 with me. He said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die, death on a cross. And the crowd spoke up, 
we've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. They're talking about prophecies that said that the Jewish Messiah would, his reign would never come to an end. There's a whole bunch of them. And then they say, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus says, it's time to wake up to God's judgment. Now, before we just unpack the text a little bit, I'm just going to talk about what judgment is. I mean, what is judgment? In, in our culture, we, we tend to think of judgment as punishment. But uh, while that is a part of judgment, that's not all of judgment. J- judgment's not less than punishment, but is certainly way more than just punishment. And think about the word judge. What does a good judge do? Well, a good judge does way more than just punish evildoers. Their job is to carefully weigh the evidence. They think, they reason, they they look at the behavior and the evidence that's before them, and then they come to a decision. And God's judgment is about what he has decided. God's judgment is about what he has decided. And what has he decided? Well, uh, Jesus talks about two things in this text. Number one, he's decided to fight our war. He's decided to fight our war. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment. Then he talks about driving out the prince of this world. And that's Jesus's way of talking about Satan, who, uh, by the way, Satan is a title uh, for a being. It, It means adversary. It's not the name of this being. It's a title. Um, and, and this adversary has been, like from days of old, from page two of the Bible, has been in revolt against God and his kingdom, and he's been doing his worst all along to set up a counter kingdom and to bring as many people and as much of creation into that chaos and destruction as possible. And he does this by manipulating people, by getting them to uh, question God's goodness, and he, he does it by twisting God's words. And Jesus is saying that the hour of judgment is here and it begins with the cross. That the cross is going to be an event in history that divides history. That that God, like through the cross, God is bringing the war uh, over creation, over human hearts, and, and over all of humanity. He's bringing the war to Satan's counter kingdom. Uh, a helpful way to think about this is uh, to think about World War II. So this is D-Day, probably one of the most iconic images uh, that we have in, in um, our, our modern culture. Uh, this is the Allied forces storming the beach at Normandy. Uh, at Normandy. Uh, they were setting up a beachhead through which they were going to uh, do war uh, through many, many battles uh, as, they, as they moved across uh, all the rest of Europe. And the cross, the cross is like D-Day. It was the beginning of an invasion, but there was still a lot of war to fight. There were still many battles to be fought. There were still going to be many casualties. A lot of people were going to get hurt. The enemy was still strong. But at that moment, the moment of D-Day, the enemy's back was broken. And that's what the cross is. We have yet to experience the, the full casting out of our enemy which is going to happen when Jesus returns. And this is kind of like this. Now, this is, this is from VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And this is this beautiful picture of these smiling girls um, and, and boys. Uh, this was recently uncovered in Manchester. So this is a party in the street in Manchester when it was announced 
that victory had been won and, the, and that the Nazis were driven from power in Europe. And this is just a small taste of what our own VE day is going to be when the battle is over. And, and right now, we're just somewhere in between. We're in wartime. John Piper has a really helpful quote as we think about what this means for us. He says, since Satan's doom is sure and he knows it, we can always remind him of it when he tempts us to follow him. We can laugh and say, you're out of your mind. Who wants to join forces with a loser? You can talk that way to say, you can be mean, it's okay. The church is the liberated enemy of the God of this world. We are the gorillas and the gadflies. We are the insurgency against the rebel kingdom of the prince of the power of the air. So, God's judgment means it's about what he's decided. He's decided to fight our war. He's also decided to draw us to repentance. To draw us to repentance. He says he's going to be lifted up, which is code uh, for crucified. And everybody knew what he was talking about. And this triggered the crowd who, who knew what he was talking about. They said, who is this son of man? Who, who is this supposed Messiah who instead of, like he leaves his, his uh, place of power and goes, like he walks right past the corridors of political power and right past the corridors of military and economic power. And what kind of Messiah would go straight past all that right to a lynching tree? Because that's what the cross is. You know that, right? Where Jesus was lynched in full view of the public. Well, Jesus is the kind of Messiah who wants more, not less, but more than just punishment for evildoers. Why? Because punishment can change your behavior. But Jesus, he, he wants our hearts. And only repentance is, can change our hearts. Paul talks about it this way in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. His kindness not his severity, not punishment, his kindness. Well, how does that work? There aren't very many shows that I binge watch, but one of them is, is called Alone. It's basically where a bunch of people are dropped in the middle of nowhere and they're separated from each other and they're told to survive as long as they can. And there are the cameras all over them and it's, it's, it's crazy what they do to survive. There's a lot of hunting. I'm not a hunter uh, but, but I can appreciate they're hunting, they're trapping, they're, they're doing all sorts of things. And there was one episode I saw recently where this guy who hadn't eaten for like a week, uh, he, had, he found a chipmunk and he clubbed the chipmunk and he killed it. And at first he looked at the camera and he was like, yes, yes, I've got it. I, like so excited he finally has uh, some protein and some fat, not very much, uh, you know, but, but it's a meal. But then you can see you can see it dawn on him, what, what has just happened. The, the weight of the, the life of this little creature starts to weigh on him. The glory of a chipmunk weighs on his heart and he sits down and with tears in his eyes. He realizes that this little chipmunk that was just running around and doing his little chipmunk thing was now dead. His life was snuffed out so that, so that he could have a meal. And he said, thank you, little guy. Thank you. How much more, 
when the son of glory is lynched on a cross for you, how much more do you experience the kindness of God? What does that do in your heart when you see heaven's life snuffed out on the cross for you? You begin to feel the weight of God's glory. It it leads us to repentance. And we realize in that moment that God's judgment is not just about slamming a door in our face. It's about opening a window of opportunity for us to repent. So what do we do? In, In light of this moment, in light of knowing what time it is, what do we do? And Jesus says uh, in verse 35, you're gonna have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you will become children of the light. In other words, you'll become uh, disciples or apprentices of the way of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself from them. So what does he say we're to do? Now what? In the light of this moment, he says first, believe in the light. Believe in the light. And, and we, we understand what that looks like uh, as we look at uh, Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 11. He says, this is Paul writing, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. We have to believe in the light. See, God's, he has made his choice for you abundantly clear on the cross that he has chosen in his infinite glorious love to step out of his throne room and go straight to our lynching tree, the lynching tree that we created, the lynching tree that we deserved. And get this, God has done this before requiring anything from you. And this is what, what God does. His kindness always comes before his rules. And in every court of law, you're judged based on your obedience to the law. But in God's courtroom, what you're judged on is whether or not you have entrusted yourself to the judge who's already taken your sentence. And the court is in recess, and you have a choice to make. But the clock is ticking it's been ticking for a long time, but it won't tick forever. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient t- toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all uh, should reach repentance. We're, we're to believe in the light. And the last words of uh, John chapter 12 are so ominous, because when Jesus finished speaking, he left, and he hid himself from them. And we think of hell as a place where God sends bad people kicking and screaming. But I think what this shows us is that it's more a place for people who have seen the light, but they choose to to believe in their own darkness. So will you believe? Will you trust this judge? The other thing uh, that we're to do uh, in, now that we know what time it is, is to walk in the light, to walk in the light. And this is just about living in light of the glory of God. See, Jesus is troubled. He's about to go to the cross. How did he overcome that? Like, did he just grin and bear it? 
No, he, he realized the secret to obedience, especially in the midst of suffering, is to be awake to the glory of God because when you're awake to God's glory, to, you're awake to what really matters, puts everything else in its place. You may be struggling right now with constant anxiety, constant worry, constant fear. And I would, I would say it's probably not because you have an anxiety problem. It's probably because you have a glory problem. And, and maybe, maybe you've been treating your job or your health or your money or your kids as the most important, weighty, valuable, imminent things in your life when they're not. If you have a glory problem, it's time to walk in the light of God's glory. Jesus puts it this way in, in uh, Luke 21. He said, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. Remember, glory literally means weightiness. Weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and, with, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap to walk in the light. And if that's you, if, if your heart is troubled before God, a powerful prayer is, Father, glorify your name because that will stabilize your soul and will set you free. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to feel the weight of the divine breaking into our lives. Lord, we want to wake up to what really matters. Would you help us, God? Lord, some of us have yet to trust you. I pray that you would lead us to repentance by your kindness, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. And I ask your blessing on my friends. In Jesus' name, amen.